The Easter Sunday story begins in the dirt. What do I mean by that? It begins in the mundane. It begins in the earthy, daily, ordinariness of life. These three women, two of the Marys and Salome, they're going to prepare Jesus' body. There's no mention of their grief. There's no mention of their shock. There's no mention of their emotional state. We might find that really odd. But I think we can imagine the kind of head and heart space they're in on that first day of the week. So, they gather the necessary spices to anoint Jesus' body per their custom. And they head to the tomb early that Sunday, not long after sunrise. They've waited until after the Sabbath, which was Saturday, our holy Saturday. That's past. Perhaps because even anointing a body was construed as work, forbidden activity on the Sabbath. Perhaps because of all the drama and violence they just walked through two days prior. Maybe they hope to go about their business uh, quietly and without drawing attention to themselves. I mean, they have a real reason to fear the watchful eye of the Sanhedrin. They just orchestrated the death of Jesus, the execution, days prior. It is clear, it is clear that they do not travel to the tomb expecting resurrection. This isn't like children coming downstairs on Christmas morning, expecting to see the presents under the tree and the full stockings. That's not what it is. They didn't go to check to see if the tomb's empty. If they did, why bring all those spices and all those supplies? No, they weren't hedging their bets here. Their Lord was dead. That was what they thought. So they carry these spices, these anointing supplies with them to the tomb. And they wonder aloud, on those mundane practical details that we know so well. I love this. They worry about who's going who's gonna to roll the stone away for us? Who's going to do that so we can actually access the tomb? I love this. This is a bit of levity. Um, it's kind of an oops on their part. That's a rather big detail. All that for naught. A bit of levity to an otherwise sad scene. So uh, they'd remember to prepare the spices, all the supplies they'd forgotten to arrange with Joseph's servants, to help moving the stone. Very understandable, though, oversight, given all that they've just walked through. This is why it's helpful when you plan a funeral to have friends around you. Grief and shock, they dull the brain and, and details just escape us. So they help you remember things like this. So they worry over this rather important and essential detail. They certainly can't move the stone themselves. So this entire trip might be a big wasted effort. They wonder about this. They worry over this. But their worries over the stone are soon alleviated. They arrive and the stone is rolled away. Now, no doubt, they're more than a little intrigued. Does this increase their anxiety? I don't know. Uh, How confused are they? We don't know. All we know is something very strange, something very out of the ordinary has happened. That much we know and that much they note. Their mundane, earthly, ordinary tasks of going about their business and anointing Jesus' dead body is about to be transformed into something holy, sacred, and supernatural. This is God's specialty. This is what God does. So with whatever sense of intrigue or whatever their misgivings or whatever fear, however they're feeling about it, they enter the tomb. And here's how you need to picture it. It's like a tunnel of some sorts that leads to this inner chamber. So they make their way through this tunnel. They get to the inner chamber and they've got two rather startling surprises upon reaching that dark chamber of the tomb. One, where's Jesus' body? 
But I think what startles them the most is number two. There's a young man there. He's dressed in white and he is seated. Now, think that's a bit out of place? Yes. Uh, think that's surprising? Yes. Understatement. People generally don't hang about in the tombs of strangers. Last I checked. From other gospel accounts, we know this young man is what? You know? He's an angel. Right. Now, Mark doesn't tell us this outright. He's smart. He's a good author. He's going to show rather than tell. But he does give us some clues for why we know this. The young man is in white, which somehow, miraculously, uh, can be seen in the dark. Complete darkness. So that's a little strange. You see his white and shining clothes like this. They tend to be how heavenly visitors adorn themselves. That's clue number one. Clue number two, the women are frightened of him. That is the typical response when people meet an angel in scripture. They're frightened. And thirdly, he's seated. I think what's up with that? Well, this is the traditional posture for when you're teaching or speaking. It's a position of authority. Jesus did this very often. Notice before he teaches, it says, and Jesus sat down and he taught them, as did other rabbis. So here's the upshot. If this is an ordinary young man, their reaction makes no sense at all. They're fearful and they're in shock as they see him. Now, occasionally in the scriptures, angels, angels are these uh, luminescent divine warriors. They come from the heavenly host army of God and they stand like a sentry. They tend to like mark a place, a special God's going to do something here. God did something here. More often than not, they're messengers. They come with news directly from God. Okay. And angels don't hang out. They don't tarry. They're always there uh, for a purpose. Their presence is always very purposeful. And as messengers of the Most High God, they could bring good news or not. It might be bad news. So I wonder if this is part of the women's fear. What is the nature of this message? Is this joy and good news or is this bad news? Is this judgment? Could be the one. Maybe that's part of their fear. I don't know. The angel breaks the silence and speaks. This angel paid attention in Angel Training 101. This I like. I, 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 can, I can hear it. Okay, guys, look. Humans, they spook really easily. They're cagey. So you got to be careful. Uh, when they see you, they're going to freak out. That's what's going to happen. Just plan on it. So step one, reassure the humans. Tell them something along the lines like, don't be afraid. It's okay. Which is what he does. He says, do not be afraid. Don't be afraid. In other words, good news. Good news. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place relay. Look, empty tomb. Go and tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. You'll see him there, just like he told you. He is risen. He's not here. Well, duh, that's sort of an obviously risen. You have to wonder if they're going, wait a minute. Jesus used that exact same word a few times with us before. Didn't he? Yes, he did. Did they catch that echo in that moment? I don't know. Did the wheels start turning as they remembered what Jesus said? The angel commands them, and I did say that correctly. He does command them to go, tell Peter, the other disciples, to leave violent Jerusalem and go to Galilee. Go regroup there. That's what I want you to do. And by the way, that's three to four days journey. Go do that. Go back to where this whole story began. Retreat to Galilee, Jesus' hometown. Uh, he'll meet you there. Interesting. And upon hearing this, 
the women flee, it says. A big, hot mess of understandable shock, fear from the angelic encounter. They're full of trembling, they're full of astonishment and bewilderment. Makes total sense. And they're so caught up, they're so occupied by what they just experienced that they're silent as they walk back to Jerusalem or wherever they happen to go next. Even as they're passing numerous strangers, they say nothing. So at the end of the story, (laughs) we don't know what these women think exactly. We don't know. We don't know if they truly believed in that moment. We don't know if they fully embraced what the angel had to say immediately. And that is the Easter Sunday story according to Mark. That's funny or ironic or sad. I don't know which. The Easter Sunday story begins with evidence. It begins with clues. It begins with signs, these suggestive fragments, these little scraps and breadcrumbs that lead somewhere. The various gospel writers leave us quite a clue list. There's an empty tomb. There's a stone that's rolled back. There's some grave clothes. In some counts, there's terrified Roman guards and others. The Jewish leaders are panicked. The angels sent by God are the ones who interpret the clues. This is what it means. This is what the signs mean. He's not here. He's risen. So act one in the Easter Sunday story, according to Mark, is there's no Jesus. He's not here. The women have some intriguing signs and clues. They have the angel's interpretation, which reinforced Jesus' earlier promises of rising again. But we've yet to see him. It's all negative space so far. All negative space. So you got to love this. God orchestrated the resurrection such that belief, better said, faith was still required. It's not a home run the way we would orchestrate a home run. Will these women act upon what they've been told? Will they risk belief? Thank the Lord, and I mean that quite literally, they do. We learn later that these women were convinced. They proved to be the first believers, the very first true converts. They've often been called the first true disciples, rightfully so. You've heard the phrase, last at the cross, first at the tomb. That's about these faithful women. They do share the good news with the disciples. And they have serious doubts of their own. They're very skeptical. They thought the women were hysterical or crazy, all these things. So in the Easter Sunday story, all original witnesses, they had to be convinced that Jesus really was raised from the dead. He promised resurrection, but only slowly and only methodically did his own inner circle come to believe that he was actually alive. Despite Jesus' multiple promises of resurrection and all the mounting evidence, in the Easter Sunday story, the first people in the year convincing were those closest to Jesus, the ones whom he'd spent the most time with, those who'd walked with him for years in some cases, who'd seen him perform miracles, the first skeptics, the first in need of convincing the inner circle. It was not just Thomas. It was all of them. They all needed conversion. So why should we be so surprised that the world around us is any different? We shouldn't. When resurrection comes, I think the message is this. Nobody's ready for it. Nobody. The holy, sacred, supernatural nature of the resurrection just intruded upon their very mundane and ordinary moments. And their initial response, if I read it, is kind of a wah, 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 wah. I mean, 
The Trinity must do a face palm. Like, oh, guys, if I'm in Jesus' sandals, having just suffered the unimaginable for these skeptics and having handily and definitively defeated the world of flesh and the devil, you know what I'm thinking? You've got to be kidding me. Guys, what do I have to do for you to get it? Throw me a bone here. Help a brother out for God's sake, literally, and the world's sake. Have a little faith. Bingo. Have little faith. Our response to the resurrection? Faith. That's what God wants, which begins with belief. Believe. Believe me. Move forward in faith. Have a little faith. So when Jesus said, it's finished, talked about this Good Friday, I'm not sure we grasp the magnitude of what those words of life mean. George Herbert, fine poet, said this, death used to be an executioner, but the gospel makes him just a gardener. Death used to be an executioner. The gospel transformed into just a gardener. The resurrection transforms and reconfigures everything. Reality as we know it. The world and the flesh and the devil, guess what? Can't do the resurrection. Done. Hell cannot prevail against the resurrection. Sorry, can't touch it. Nothing can make the resurrection untrue. Nothing. It's finished, meaning it's completed, it's fulfilled, it's accomplished. And because of the resurrection, we're now more oriented to life. Death is not our point of orientation. Death is not what we orbit around anymore. We are now people of the resurrection. We are the people of God gathered. We are the church, a colony of heaven in the country of death, Eugene Peterson says. Because of the resurrection, we are now oriented to life from here on out. And we're people of the resurrection. That is the Easter Sunday story in completion. So what are we to do with this wonderful and wild thing we call resurrection? Like, how do you respond to that? What do you do with that? I'm going to suggest two things. Firstly, we party. We celebrate. So the thing I love about our church calendar is this. We're going to throw a 50-day party that lasts from now until Pentecost Sunday. That's in like late May. So we celebrate. Fasting's done. Lent, that's behind us. Lent ended yesterday. This is Easter time. Okay, that's behind us. In fact, fasting tends to be forbidden in Easter. There's a reason for that. The hallelujahs are back. Ring, 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 ring. You heard that. The Lord has risen. He's risen indeed. This is an entire season of celebration and gratitude. Last we're about to do. So how do we respond to that? The church throws a party. We celebrate. We have a continuous feast of joy and gratitude, often called the Great Lord's Day. It's 50 days long. So what does that mean? I tell you, I've never done a 50-day party, not once in my life. But that takes some fortitude and some stubbornness, doesn't it? So let's be stubborn about this celebration we call Easter, resurrection. Let's be stubborn and intractable about this celebration, okay? So just as our worship today is a weapon of defiance against evil, which it is, so also our celebration is an intentional act of proclaiming that Jesus lives. So our gratitude becomes uh, a way of saying Jesus is alive. It's a way of joy beating back the darkness. It's a way of enacting that. That's what our liturgy means, which says let us keep the feast. Let's keep the feast. 
So what are we to do with this resurrection life? This way in which God has come and upended everything? We celebrate. We don't let go of that. We don't kind of go from here and have a meal and then go, okay, Easter's done. Cool, great. What's next? No. We stay in it. We celebrate. That's one. Lastly, and I've alluded to this uh, a couple times, maybe more. Per our gospel passage, we believe and we grow in faith. Look, some of you here may not know Jesus at all. I don't know. We've got a lot of new faces here. I don't know. Maybe today is the day and this season is the season to move in and believe Jesus. Say, so you know what? I think this is actually for real. I think this is someone who died for my sins to bring me home to God. That's the case. Step in. Believe. Move in faith. So what I'm getting at here with belief is maybe the season is about growing in faith. Growing in faith. Leaning in and embracing the resurrection in this way. The scriptures describe faith as a gift. It's a gift that needs care. It's a gift that needs attention and some nurture. So we need to make something of our faith, right? We need to act upon it as the women did and as the disciples did. Without their faithful testimony, we would not be here. They acted upon it. They believed and they testified. They did something. So maybe faith is that muscle that we need to use and build up in this season. We're stewards of resurrection, which is our joy. So to share the good news that we've been entrusted with, okay? And we want the world to know that death used to be an executioner, but that the gospel, meaning the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, makes him just a gardener. We want them to know that. That is good news for every single human being. So let's flex the muscle of faith. Let's put it into action as we celebrate.